Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So we have uh, today an exciting founder, an exciting founder that is a repeated founder. We're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, when it comes to building, scaling, financing, exiting, also doing the integration, doing the vesting, the vesting and resting, as some of you call it. But uh, without a doubt, we're going to be learning quite a bit, and I'm sure that many of you are going to be inspired. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jacob Kroxgard. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So originally born in the northwest part of Denmark, how was life growing up there? Well, it was uh, very exciting if you want to look at all the wind turbines that once installed back then in the in the eighties and nineties. But uh, but besides that, uh, it's not like uh, the the place in Denmark where where so much is happening. Um, but uh, but nevertheless, an, an an interesting and uh, and comfortable period, getting inspired to what eventually have become my uh, uh, my life work. So at what point do you really, you know, believe that that's the future? Because this, this happened really early on for you. You know, at what point were you inspired enough? So I'm working within, uh, uh, within hydrogen business and producing hydrogen out of renewable power. So the inspiration for, uh, for kind of starting up with all of this were back in the mid-90s when I was still a teenager. Uh, we had a, a fall storm in the, in the northwest part of Denmark. And uh, the electrical grid actually collapsed. And uh, that never happens in Denmark. It's a very robust and stable electrical grid. And the reason for that the grid collapsed up there were because there were more uh, renewable power produced from wind turbines that the electrical grid actually consumed. Because no one back then actually uh, installed uh, a turn-off button in wind turbines because they only imagined that you had an electrical grid, you could just push power in. All of a the sudden, they needed to do like a, a manual curtailment, meaning that they literally called one farmer and said, today, turn off your wind turbine. Another farmer, the next day, turn off your wind turbine because the storm might be coming. And that was the manual curtailment. Today, that is uh, fully automated and happening all around the world with renewable power. So solar and wind being produced in, uh, in excess of what we need. And thereby, you start to have the issues. And the more renewables we get implemented, we get into challenges of using that, harvesting it efficiently. And that's what you can do by producing hydrogen and store it and use that for other purposes where you cannot back. Beautiful. Now, obviously, you know, like that has been the, uh, the path that you decided to follow. I mean, you essentially went to high school, then you went to college. Now, in college, very interesting. You studied, I mean, typically you would have people studying computer engineering or electrical engineering or mechanical engineering, whatever engineering that is. In your case, you studied business development engineering. That's quite unique. I got to tell you, I haven't seen this often. So what were you doing really in business development engineering? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's the only university in the world where you can get that degree. So yes, it's, uh, it's pretty unique. The, the idea of this, of, of this degree is basically to create entrepreneurs, project managers, so people that has a broad engineering technical competence so not just in mechanical or electronic or uh, structural, but in, in all uh, fields of engineering, not as deep, but has a basic understanding. Then you add some legal, some design, some finance, 
you put that in, you stir around, and eventually pops out an entrepreneur. That were the idea when that education was originally founded. I was on uh, the third, uh, the third year uh, of this education, so still a very young and new education, uh, and I, f- I found that very, uh, very inspiring because the the founders of that uh, of that education were still around. They were still like with a with full energy, full throttle, giving so much inspiration to uh, to this uh, this class of students. And there was a limited limited uptake uh, uptake of uh, forty, I think, per year. That was. I a- mean, I, I knew it was unique the moment I saw that uh, degree. But uh, so in your case, you eventually graduated, uh, and uh, and you got together, you know, with some of your classmates, and uh, you decided it was time to start your own thing. So walk us through what happened. Yeah, well, well, actually, we started way before we graduated. So we graduated in two thousand six, but we. Uh, we founded uh, h 2 back in 2003. So uh, I and, uh, and three of my fellow students, uh, we were working in, uh, in, in different uh, teams, making different projects uh, in the college, where uh, eventually we started with a hiding project. Uh, me and one of my other friends from way back, we grew up close together uh, in the northwest part of Denmark, and he always said, we got to work on hiding, we got to work on hiding. Where I told him it's uh, it's too early. We gotta we gotta see who are the other students on this uh, uh, in this course before we jump into bed with some. And then uh, uh, on the third year, that was the time. So then we uh, started up a project uh, on hydrogen, and I think six weeks after we founded H two Logic. And the the purpose with H two Logic was basically to work with hydrogen, trying to uh, to develop. Uh, hardware. So we started making a uh, few cell systems for small uh, vehicles where you couldn't electrify them, making them as replacements for, uh, for, uh, for gasoline and diesel vehicles. Realizing that we needed a ways to, to fuel these vehicles, so then we developed uh, uh, hydrogen stations to fuel hydrogen on these types of vehicles. So here we're talking about forklifts, uh, leisure slash golf vehicles, uh, small uh, city cleaning vehicles. So those types of vehicles that honestly today we see them mainly being electrified. We didn't see that back then. So we developed both the fuel cell systems to integrate in these vehicles to make them run on hydrogen, and we developed the hydrogen stations to fuel it. Um, and that's, that went well. We, were, uh, we didn't have any money, so uh, we, uh, we needed to, to sell products um, before we developed them. We were successful in getting uh, R&D funding from uh, so the, the Danish uh, energy agency, the, the Danish counterpart of the DOE. And that mixed with sales of products just roughly made it work. So we had made a balance every year while growing the organization and developing competence. Now, it's really incredible that uh, because you founded the company about, you know, in the early 2000s or around 2003. And... Obviously, in Denmark, you know, now, you know, probably is developing, you know, farther, you know, when it comes to the startup world, the venture world, the venture money accessible to all those entrepreneurs. But back then, you know, it was probably non-existent. So was that was that a really big challenge for you guys? Yes. I also think it was um, necessary. So I think in, in, in those years, in, in the early years of H2Logic, with our ambition of growing more rapidly than we had cash to do, uh, I think I made like maybe 50 
different investor pitches. They they all liked me. They couldn't understand the business case. So many of those, of course, have afterwards uh, approached me and said, "God damn it, why didn't we believe in you?" But uh, uh, but nevertheless, that's a different story. So we really really made a lot of these uh, uh, pitches. Uh, I think conclusion were that the market was simply too early. This was prior to venture. So we were probably looking at seed, and the challenge were we we didn't want to do such a dilution to get some seed capital. So very early 2008, we also had a professional board of directors that we invited to join uh, uh, H2Luck. They also got a small ownership. I think that was an extremely wise decision because uh, when you're an entrepreneur and you are working on the day-to-day and you're working on on tactical and then strategic in the evening, you very easily get blinded. And having a having a board of directors, I think we are not even ten people when they when they joined, was really really key. And that was uh, the former CEO and CTO of Westas Wind Power, like the world's largest wind turbine manufacturer, and the former Minister of Energy and Transportation in Denmark. We actually got those three guys to join us, like the Oscars of wind power. Man, yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's incredible the way that you structure that now. I'm sure that that opened up the the world of opportunities for you guys when it came to accessing money, when it came to accessing talent. Would you say, you know, that uh, that you were able to really benefit from their network to plug it into the execution of the business? Yeah, but actually not too much. All of those three guys were, of course, already pretty uh, pretty clever back then. So they didn't want to expose themselves too much. They wanted to play me and my team good. So help us behind the scene to make sure that we made the right decisions. And of course, they opened the necessary doors if they could. Uh, so I think generally, they didn't, uh, like like all good parents, uh, you, don't, uh, you don't tell what to do. You're trying to guide in the right direction. And if it's really bad, you tell, uh, you tell when to duck because something is going to happen. Understood. Now, for you guys, you know, like you were pushing this for about 13 years. And then in 2016, you know, something changed. You know, obviously, you know, someone came knocking on the door. Perhaps, you know, it was timing. You know, what 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 happened at that point that they made you guys at a board level decide that it made sense to go after an acquisition? Yeah. Oh, actually, it was in, in, in 2015. The story starts a little bit before then. So in, in 2009, uh, the global car manufacturers, more or less all of them, uh, made an, uh, an announcement in September saying that by 2015, they would have uh, hundred thousands of fuel cell cars on the road uh, in the in the markets globally where hidden station networks were built. That was our cue. So we sold off anything that were related to fuel cell systems and just focused on making hidden stations. We developed a new hidden station uh, technology. Uh, we sold that to customers here in the Nordics and uh, Nordic and the middle part of Europe, and uh, developed a new generation of hiring stations, uh, realized that we needed to be able to grow rapidly. So we made the blueprints of a big factory that we needed to do in order to be able to supply all of those stations that would be needed in 2015 and the, and the years to come. Uh, so that we prepared and we were ready. And in 2015, uh, we were uh, acquired by Mill. Uh, Nell were a uh, Norwegian uh, electronizer manufacturer that basically were uh, were listed not too long uh, before then, I think half a year before then. They were on the journey to uh, develop what they called the world's largest hiding company. 
and they needed to uh, do MA to increase the activities of uh, uh, of not and uh, that made sense for us they gave us a a good offer we needed both uh, seen from a, a founder and shareholder point of view that was attractive secondly they brought additional cash to invest in the factory that we needed in order to continue to grow our business so that made sense and i think we executed the 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 diligence and the definitive documents within 6 weeks wow i mean that's pretty fast and in this case it was about 30 million bucks so thirty million dollars that uh, ended up being the um, the transaction value of this, and there was like a, a structure there where you guys did you know a blend of stock and cash. So how was that blend, and and how did you guys go about making sure that that was you know set in place you know correctly? Uh, well, of course we had all the necessary uh, 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 advice and support on our side, uh, but the structure was uh, uh, one third in cash and two thirds in uh, uh, in shares and milk. So basically, that was a, a share swap, and I think that was a uh, a, a brilliant move, uh, both by the the board of uh, of Nil back then uh, and by ourselves as well, because that gave us as uh, as founders of HTLogic uh, both a little cash to uh, to make the uh, the families back home uh, less concerned, but at the same time a high level of motivation to keep going. Because uh, I, I I have actually seen a few occasions, not trying to mention any specifically, but where founders are bought out, and then they have a they have an earn out, and that's it. See you on Bahamas. And then very quickly the organization falls apart. Yeah. Hey, not nothing nothing bad with being in Bahamas, but uh, I totally I totally get what you're saying because I mean in this case you guys did stay for quite a bit longer than, you know, typically those integrations, they would be about a year or two. And in this case, you stayed for longer. You stayed for close to four years. Yes, exactly. I, I stayed four years, but uh, both because I had to, but I think actually equally important because I enjoyed it. I uh, uh, I, I grew the the organization substantially together with uh, uh, with the management of, uh, of, of NOM, helping uh, help, uh, help set up subsidiaries in Korea and California. And uh, by the end of that period, when I exited, we had a, a full order book with more than one year of an order backlog and were the largest hiding station supplier in the world. I think that was okay. I mean, I think that was more than okay. Now, given that that was more than okay, and now, you know, you, your family, you know, everyone was said, you know, how would I say this financial freedom, you know, why going at it again? You know, that's a, that's a question I get a lot. And uh, the the people that know me uh, would also know that uh, uh, using the parallel to Bahamas again, I would definitely love that for three or four weeks, but that's it. Uh, then uh, I wouldn't be able to just do nothing. I was not done. Uh, honestly speaking, I felt like I was not done proving uh, that uh, a heightened business would be successful. Because back then and now, we were still Investing, meaning that we invested more than we earned. And uh, I fundamentally believe that we're still in the early days in Highland. And uh, we are not there where uh, cash is just generated like crazy. And I believe that seeing that path to success actually also is an obligation to prove it. Uh, to prove it to myself and prove it to shareholders. But uh, uh, we also have a, a climate crisis where we need solutions. And uh, showing that we can do that in Neverfuel, where we in in, in Neverfuel, the company I'm a CEO of today, 
where we are uh, the owner and operator of the full hydrogen value chain, where we are developing uh, large-scale hydrogen projects uh, with hydrogen production from renewable power, hydrogen distribution, and hydrogen dispensing to fuel cell vehicles, and selling, uh, or shortly will be selling, uh, hydrogen molecules to industrial customers. So setting up, setting up such a business uh, requires uh, insight and talent uh, and I think that's what uh, what we brought when we founded uh, Everfuel in uh, in 2019. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process, and it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super super difficult. So. I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So you found the Teverfuel, you know, obviously in this uh, uh, career path that you embarked yourself, you know, when you were a kid, you know, pretty much, you know, which is something that really you really truly believed in. I guess for the people that are listening, I mean, you were you were touching there on the on the model and and what you guys are up to. But how do you guys make money? Uh, well, today we are we're burning more than we earn. So when we are earning money, we earn money by uh, producing hydrogen. So. This is true uh, electrolyzers, a, a machine that uh, maybe some of you remember from the physics class, where you have water like you're drinking now, where you put in electrodes and up pops hydrogen and oxygen. The hydrogen, we, or we store that, and then that hydrogen has a value. The hydrogen can be used in industrial processes, in refineries. It can be used in industrial processes to replace natural gas. So right now, that's pretty hot, especially here in, uh, here in Europe with the situation in Ukraine. And it's also used for fuel for the heavy-duty and intensive vehicles like taxis and trucks. So we are earning money by by selling those uh, uh, by selling hydrogen uh, as a fuel. And the more we sell, well, the more we earn. And uh, then, of course, there is a, a cross point where that makes a lot of sense. Now, with you guys, you know, in this case, it was a little bit different than when you started H2 Logic, your previous company, because your previous company. You did it in the early 2000s with Everfuel. You got going in 2019. So I'm sure that the way that uh, you were able to access talent, the way that you were able to access capital, it had changed quite a little bit. So did you see it a little bit less challenging on those two fronts? Uh, Yes and yes. 
uh, second time is is uh, or uh, easy is a wrong word, and my fellow everfuelers will kill me if I say so. But it's definitely easier. So we also went from uh, from from zero to uh, where we roughly ninety employees in three and a half years. People employed in in five different countries. Uh, we have um, we have people from eleven different nationalities that have joined us. People from as far away as New Zealand moved here to work for us. So our our head office. Uh, we call this the Everfuel Farm. It's uh, it's an old farm just south of uh, of, uh, of Herning in Denmark, uh, in a beautiful beautiful landscape scenic site, where we renovated the entire place. Uh, we wanted it to be uh, a a very cool story when uh, when customers and guests everybody uh, visits us, and we want it to be a location where uh, you have um, time and you have space for creativity, basically. For what we do here, that's to a great extent sales and business development and and developing hiding projects. We need uh, the best skilled people, and we need a very good internet connection. And then uh, that's it. So we might as well do that at a scenic location instead in uh, instead of just doing it in a in a glass and concrete building somewhere downtown a big city. Now, for you guys, you've raised uh, about a hundred million, a little bit over a hundred million. The company you took the company public, so. How is it to really now, I mean, the experience of taking a company public and really dealing with the upswings of of the market? Because, I mean, in COVID, the company was valued at a billion. Now the company is valued at the 290 million or so. So it just goes ups and downs. So how do you ride that roller coaster? Well, when uh, when we were when we were acquired by uh, by Nell, we already had the experience and I was very close to the processes of being listed. So we were not, uh, uh, we were not unexperienced there. Um, and I actually think being uh, being listed had a lot of upsides, of course, some downsides that you need to be public and you need to tell everything you do. So uh, working in stealth mode doesn't work. However, creating the necessary speed, momentum, and also the required capital to uh, to execute on our ambitions, uh, the only way to do that is by being listed. Uh, and uh, of course, myself still being the majority shareholder, um, it's also important that we are uh, that we are listed in a way where it's, it's possible for us to go and ask shareholders for additional capital when we have next and further projects that we need to invest. So from from day one when we listed, we basically uh, put out our our business plan uh, that within ten years that was now uh, until uh, twenty thirty we will reach one billion euro in revenue and in order to get there we need to invest one point five billion. Of that, 300 million euros will come as equity, and the remaining part will come as non-equity, being uh, uh, public funds, hopefully as many as possible, and then uh, back, uh, bank uh, loans. In order to do that, you need your projects to be bankable, and that's a complexity by its own. But setting out that, that ambition and that guiding star, and, and basically walking through the, uh, the slogan we have behind yesterday's win is today's fuel, telling that story, Again and again and again, has really brought a lot of shareholders to join us from uh, more or less all over the planet. Constantly, mainly focused here in Northern Europe, but also from uh, from US. And you know, one thing that is very interesting too here is timing, because with your last company, you were ahead of the market. Now you're literally at the right time in history. There sounds there there seems to be like more consciousness around climate change and. And around, you know, like what we could do to to really, you know, contribute and help out, you know, in that regard. 
would you say that that has also helped you guys and and also helped you on the on that strategy of being a publicly listed company? Yes, I I, I would say I have you I have been working now twenty years with Heiden. I used the first eighteen years to tell about Heiden, and it's the last two years that people actually started to listen. Uh, where all of a sudden uh, people, it's it's like there there became a a movement of realization. Okay, we cannot just make the world green by solar and wind alone. We have uh, the heart to uh, abate uh, sectors. We have a challenge in transport, and we have a great challenge uh, if we need electricity at the night time if the wind is not blowing, which actually happens quite a lot. So we need ways to balance that. And producing hydrogen from that surplus renewable is just um, the logical only way. Then uh, the people that disagree will say, "Well, it's not that uh, it's, it's not as efficient as just taking electricity, sorry, electricity and into a battery." But if we're not just using the battery to to store electricity on board uh, a vehicle, but we want to use uh, batteries to store electricity to balance an entire electrical grid, electrical system. We are absolutely out of uh, of the materials and the metals to do to make those batteries in a very short time. So there's no way around, and all of a sudden, uh, all no way around hydrogen. And all of a sudden, like two years ago, um, there became like a a, a, a general um, acceptance. Okay, that's the way to go. Power to X, the theme power to X. All of the sudden, all of a sudden, started to make sense. Power to whatever X, the X being hydrogen or the next coming after hydrogen being ammonia or methanol or some other um, some other fuel that you can then store and use at another point in time we don't have your renewal. Now imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, Jacob, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Everfuel is fully realized. What does that world look like? Uh, well, that's the good thing about the vision. It's basically impossible. The vision of Everfuel uh, is basically a, 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 a green planet without uh, without any pollution, and it's a green planet running uh, sustainably, meaning that it's sustainable from a renewable perspective, but it's also sustainable from an economic perspective. And when you when you start to look at that on a very very macro and global perspective, hydrogen becomes the energy vector that you can actually use to transport uh, uh, energies uh, and balance energies uh, across continents. That takes quite a few uh, uh, decades before we're there. Um, but um, in 2050, 2060, uh, 2050 or 55 is like the UN ambition. And, oh, my God, we need to be globally coordinated to really achieve that. Um, uh, we'll work our asses off to get there, but uh, let's see. But anyway, uh, when, when when that is completed, uh, I'm also at uh, retirement age, so I think that is uh, that's the vision. And obviously, there's uh, a lot of talk now about what's going on with uh, climate change and and where the world, the planet, is heading. Do you think we have a shot at uh, saving it or not? Of course, um, it's my it's my fundamental personal belief that. We will not save the planet by uh, by blocking things. We're not saving it by uh, uh, making it illegal to use airplanes or whatever. 
we will continue to do evolution, but we will do that evolution in a sustainable way. I think we will unfortunately uh, have further challenges with the climate changes than, than what we see today. Um, so with my res- being a resident up here in up here in Denmark, where uh, half of the year is pretty cold, I guess it's not that bad, but on a global perspective, it's really an issue. Uh, like, um, um, yeah, it's it's really it's really an issue, and it's something um, that bothers me. And actually, especially uh, my kids, my two daughters, they like they truly uh, they don't want to drive anything else but my fuel cell car or my wife's battery car. Incredible. Now, imagine Jacob, I put you into a time machine, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time, you know, perhaps when you were, you know, still a student of the business development engineering, you know, degree. And let's say you had the chance of sitting your younger self down for a chat and you were able to give that younger Jacob one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? (laughs) That's interesting. Uh, Well, from uh, from uh, from 2003 until now has definitely not just been strategy on a straight line that has been all over the place back forth up down and then eventually to where we are today so what would my advice be um stand up for what you believe in so uh, even if it has been um extremely frustrating tiresome like challenging in the early days, we are uh, a few times this close to being out of business. Um, that also eventually gives you some gray hair and some robustness. Uh, and believe enough in yourself and your ability and that the the journey you are on um, is both the right for the planet and eventually a very good business. And then not tell anything about the challenges that I will see. <laughs> Amazing. Now, Jacob, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, well, I am uh, I am on both uh, Twitter and I think LinkedIn. So that I'm, uh, I'm frequently getting a lot of uh, a lot of hikes. So uh, uh, feel free to uh, uh, to raise a hand there, and I will do the best I can to uh, to say hi back. Amazing. Well, hey, Jacob, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.